Welcome to Momentum Africa. I'm your host, Hashim Mek. Our show features African leaders that are shifting the paradigms in their fields. We explore themes of leadership, economic development, current challenges, and how these leaders are providing innovative solutions to be catalysts of change in their communities. Here at Momentum Africa, we understand that there are no panacea to all problems. And this is why we examine the following topics. The influence of past and current leaders, economic development, philanthropy, culture, and health within the continent of Africa. In this episode, we have Dr. Mikhailo Ibrahim, the project lead for reading and numeracy activity in Nigeria. He has published 15 articles and bring in-depth expertise working in educational development. During the interview, we discuss his recently published article, Improving Reading and Numeracy Outcomes in Nigeria Through Strategic Trust Building in the Childhood Education International. Dr. Ibrahim also provides insights on how Nigeria has handled COVID-19. We also talked about women participation in politics. Let's begin. I'm very happy as host Hashim Meki here to uh, have you on the show. And uh, it's very clear from your bio briefly that I read, of course, you have a lot to uh, offer, that you have dedicated uh, your life to building sustainable systems in your home country of Nigeria, but also you've worked in, uh, effortlessly uh, to help others. For uh, many of uh, us in the audience, we know that Nigeria uh, is one of the uh, richest countries in Africa, but where you work in part of the country, uh, that's the nor uh, northern Nigeria, uh, it's uh, considered to have one of the highest rate for out-of-school children in the world. We know the challenges in northern Nigeria are social, economic, and political, and you work uh, in education is critical for building a better future. So with that, uh, Mr. Ibrahim, can you uh, tell us how you get into uh, this field and what inspired you to get involved in educational development in Nigeria. So the floor is yours, Mr. Brain. Okay. Um, uh, hello, uh, Hashim. It's a pleasure to be with you on Momentum Africa. I actually consider it a great honor uh, to be on this uh, uh, interactive session. Um, as you highlighted, um, my life has uh, been dedicated over the years to education in different aspects of it, either from development perspective or working with um, governments to improve sustainable systems. Um, my inspiration is that um, for any society to develop, you need um, a critical mass, or you need everyone to get a share of um, education and enlightenment. Um, one of the most important currencies in the world of today, we talk about knowledge-based economies, knowledge-based strategies, knowledge-based whatever. But the entry point to that is the ability to read and write. And this is an area in which 
we are very much lagging behind in the part of the world I occupy. In northern Nigeria, we talk about 13.5 million out-of-school children. The rate of functional literacy, the ability uh, of the individual to engage with the text, uh, make critical life decisions, is, is very low, something quite below uh, 50%. And it is much more low among girls and, and women. And we complain a lot about development in many aspects of it. And I feel unless this is addressed, we are only treating the branches when we go to the roots. So my inspiration with the education is that it is the root for all development. Um, for a society or an individual to be considered developed, um, we need to see a good healthcare system. And that certainly cannot be achieved without certain share of uh, literacy and, and, and education. You need uh, peace and stability. That cannot be achieved without people who are enlightened and ready to, co to cooperate with one another. People also with um, reasonable economic uh, independence. And all these, realistically, cannot be achieved without sound education base. And that's why I made that deliberate decision to work in education. As a last point in this regard, let me say that when I applied for uh, an admission with uh, the university, um, I applied for law, um, and that was from a lot of pressure from teachers, colleagues, that I have all the qualifications to be a good lawyer or a judge, and for, for that matter. But I've been sure my conviction has been education. And law is one of the competitive courses in Nigeria. I, yes, I made it. In fact, that very year, I was the first to be admitted in the faculty of law of my university. But when I came, my conviction took over me. And I said, please, take me back to where I can work in education. Of course, as a lawyer, you can work in education. But I felt studying something that can be directly related to education um, would help me a lot. And everybody was surprised with that decision. But I, I knew what I'm doing. And 15, 20 years down the line, I feel so good with that decision. And it's because of the critical servicing role of education to all other aspects of development. Bravo. Wow, this is an, uh, quite an extensive uh, uh, bio that you provide there. And I certainly do agree with you that you've made the right decision in Nigeria. And uh, to that matter of fact, uh, Africa is indeed uh, lucky to have your legal, but also educational background uh, to help uh, Nigeria uh, move forward. Now, um, as a leader in the Nigerian education uh, community and local politics, how would you uh, or have uh, how have you managed to uh, navigate uh, your way up? Well, navigating my way up is 
guided by certain principles. One is that try to be the best at what you do. Um, so either it is studies, either it is teaching, whatever engagement, uh, trying to be the best and, and proving that, yes, um, you, you have control over this area because you know the basics and um, you, 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 you can prove your control over those. So, so, so trying, trying to be the best. And that requires a lot of uh, effort, reading, uh, collaboration, and so on. So what th th that is the first uh, principle. The second principle for me is building relationships, networks. You can have all the strength um, you can think of, but when you don't have the right relationships, right connections, you remain an island, and you start to miss so many opportunities. Opportunities fly all around places, and um, your five senses are very limited to perceive them. But your network of classmates, um, colleagues at, at work, neighbors, um, students, you know, in different dimensions can link you with the number of opportunities that you may not even know exist. And they can also spread part of uh, what they think is a good thing you are doing um, to, to others. So without that relationship, whatever good you think you have done by being the best you can, then that is of a lot uh, uh, limited uh, perspective. So, so I think this, these two are, are really uh, are critical. Um, I build this philosophy around whether you or another person. What can take one very far is um, the issues around um, capability and also character. So, so these are, are, are things that, in a way, can enhance the two things I have mentioned, being the best and also building relationships. I, I like pretty much what you, you had to say in this regard. Uh, and of course, as you said, uh, working hard to become the best in your field uh, can only happen, uh, as you said, by putting the time and effort and the energy, but above all, you uh, articulated very well that um, you need to build that network. And as we uh, say in Africa, our African proverb, uh, it takes a village. So I'm very uh, encouraged and uh, very happy to hear that, uh, you know, those are the uh, principles upon which you could uh, dedicate yourself and with the help of others, uh, you could be uplifted as a, as a leader. So, okay, throughout your um, standing career in the education development world, uh, working hard to improve educational outcomes for students in Nigeria, what has been uh, your failure, if any, and what lessons, if any, uh, would you have uh, learned uh, from, from it? Okay, so talking about failure, um, when we started one of our earliest projects, 
we thought working with retirees uh, would help us um, move forward um, because most of them works within the education system. Uh, they have all the experience you can think of and the, the connection. So we based our intervention um, because I just believe that whatever you succeed uh, in achieving uh, has a lot to do with the kind of team you have. So we, we worked with that principle of working with retirees. Um, they achieved a lot in, in their own right. But our second model was to work with youth who are having, looking at things with fresh eye without necessarily any precedence. But then for, for some of us, with some of our experience serving as that, as that precedence. So we, we changed the model to, to working with younger people who are also just coming into the field. Mm -hmm. So in, in our first um, education intervention, we decided to work with retirees that work with education ministries and agencies, thinking that we can cash from their experience. And we did cash on that. They helped us deliver on the project mandate. But what I see in that regard is sustainability. Because as we are breaking new grounds, uh, age is not on their side to sustain it. So in, in our second model, we decided to hire and engage um, a, a younger people. Um, and most of them have their uh, eyes uh, fresh on what we are delivering. But for some of us that have already done something similar, um, our experience is serving as a sort of a guide for that. And I, I must say that um, there is a lot of learning in that that I will recommend if I have any new initiative, I'll bring youth to it and, um, and give them all the challenge. And we are seeing a lot in terms of uh, sustainability, uh, innovation, agility, and different uh, aspects of it. Partly for our first decision to work with retirees was in a way in terms of what they can take as, as a pay. Um, they may receive less and, and whatever. But now that we are using this new model, I just realized that um, regardless of what you pay, it is about the value uh, that comes uh, out of it. So we, we were taken by savings in the first instance and thinking that the experience of the old um, could be much more useful for us. But now I'm making this realization that, um, yeah, engaging the younger ones and challenging them and giving them what is rewarding enough for their expectation gives you much more result um, uh, from every sense of it and particularly from sustainability. And um, I think this is a lesson learned that I always look forward to working with uh, people that are fresh, uh, with ideas, with the readiness to take uh, a, a new challenge, and um, I, I believe it creates a lot. Right. Well, we're lucky to uh, 
have some insight into uh, your lessons learned and the fact that you emphasize engaging uh, the youth because the youth are uh, important critical uh, part of uh, our societies in Africa. Uh, I have recently read your well-articulated uh, and very informative article, uh, by the way, so congratulations on that. So the article, uh, I believe it's um, improving reading and numeracy outcomes in Nigeria through strategic trust building. And in it, you uh, emphasize very critical elements uh, and issues of uh, building trust among stakeholders and its implications for the overall educational development. Uh, can you uh, share with us and uh, um, some of your expertise on this subject uh, with our audience? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for referencing that article. And the main trust of the article was uh, trust building. Um, in whatever you do in life, trust is, is critical. And it's one thing that doesn't come at once. Uh, it improves with um, relationship uh, and, and, and confidence building. Um, so we, we talk about trust that people have with their parents. Um, this mostly comes from long-term relationship. Some will see it as a form of ontological that is, is natural. But um, the truth is that is more about uh, nurture than nature. That we have seen how our parents have really taken care of us, how they have proven to be by our side in most of uh, uh, circumstances in life. So this kind of uh, uh, principle also works in, in, in work relationships. And um, this is exactly uh, what happened between us and, and the stakeholders. There is this saying which I always um, uh, pick from the address of uh, J.F. Kennedy, inaugural address, saying that sincerity is subject to proof. That when you consistently, when you are consistent, um, it, it manifests in your everyday activity. When you try to be transparent, you don't have to memorize so many things. If you are transparent, you don't have to think of what should I hide and what, what should I uh, make open. In, in any endeavor, we are working as partners in collaboration. So, so what we emphasize there is that for any project, for any intervention to succeed, you have to build trust. And to build that trust, you, you need to be transparent, you need to be consistent. Um, by transparency, it means um, people need to be familiar with the technical import of your intervention and even programmatic. In actual sense, you have little to hide. And the more people know um, your objectives, your, your work plan, um, your goals, the more they invest in it. But the more you create um, this kind of divide um, that this is ours and this is yours, then the more people have to think and calculate on where to belong and, and what to do. So if, if you create that through transparent um, engagements, and of course it doesn't mean that somebody hijacks another person's activity, but it's the fact that this is what we are going to do and this is your role 
and this is our role. And if situations change, coming back to them and asking them that this is, these are the changes and also telling them that if for any reason uh, your situation has to change, let's come and, 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 and discuss. And creating fora for this kind of intervention from time to time. Meeting people in their offices, meeting them outside their offices, sometimes meeting them in their homes, uh, calling them on, 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 on phones, and ensuring that for any critical decision to be made, you just don't go unilateral. You are uh, multilateral and bilateral in your approach. And this way, people feel the ownership. And you don't even know when they feel like they own the project more than you. And I think for me, that is the mark of success. So build trust by being really transparent and engaging in your interaction. As much information as, 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 as possible. Um, knowledge, build knowledge. Let people understand things that you think are critical. When you break them down, people can understand them. And the more people understand things, the more they are likely to invest in them. It is said that people are enemies of what they don't understand. And that we challenge by creating more knowledge and more awareness in our project interventions for ownership and trust building. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, this is really great uh, that you uh, emphasize uh, trust building. And I very much like uh, the what you said uh, as analogy of um, saying that uh, nurture uh, than uh, nature, as in that, and you bring that uh, very, uh, you know, the first instinct that we get, you know, while we uh, go through our life uh, cycles, and you pretty much bring that to to the multi um, stakeholders to implement and uh, do interventions, and this is really great to uh, hear. Now, uh, on that same um, uh, topic. Uh, you lead a large donor-funded education program, which you've talked about, uh, that f focuses on uh, uh, expanding reading and numeracy. Uh, why you provide uh, managerial uh, leadership and materials development, teacher development, and stakeholder engagement, as you uh, mentioned, and that's I believe is an, an effort to improve Hausa Mazatank uh, uh, early grade reading, which you've uh, highlighted a little and sustainable reading policies in Nigeria. Uh, what steps do, uh, do you take to ensure the well-being of your staff? Uh, uh, if you can elaborate more uh, on that since you've already uh, uh, highlighted a bit. Initially, I made a submission around whatever you need to achieve. Um, you need to reflect uh, on how uh, your team can help do that. And the first point of entry is the composition of the team, that you need to engage people who have the right mix of skills and competencies and um, all other attributes to make you succeed. But forming the team in itself is not enough. Managing it is also very critical. And I think that is the focus of your, your, your concern now. Um, in managing a team, well, I just, in the first instance, I feel that we are all managing ourselves. So I don't create a sort of divide in which here is 
um, the manager, and here are the, 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 the followers. So we, we try to integrate so much that um, people naturally uh, have to work to, the, to, to detect who actually is, is the manager. But um, there are ways of doing that. You see, you need to lead, not manage. They, they talk about um, the managers uh, think about doing things right while the leaders uh, think about doing the right things. I think for me, these are important distinctions in the way we work as a team. But how, how, how does it work? Whenever you work with a team, think about how you can impact on, on them professionally. You are leading not just because you are either older or you attend this or that school, but because it is perceived that you have a certain experience to, to share with the team. So I, I just feel that how much impact professionally um, I've made on uh, my team members is my success criterion. So professional dimension of leadership. The other dimension of it is the social dimension that you need to know about um, how they live. They are just not like your computers in the office. Um, they are human beings. They have families. They have uh, fears. They have aspirations. And you, you need to know about that and, and think of how much you can, you can support. And there are several ways to do that. Um, but I will mention the key way of, of doing it in the end. But you, I, I will just think about how much engaged I am with the team uh, socially. Some of them, as much as you can, you need to even know the names of their family members, their kids, and ask about them. And sometimes a mere question about how a certain boy is doing, and you get to know a lot more, and you can provide a lot more intervention and, and support. Then the other one is, of course, I feel spiritual leadership is also um, important. As a leader, you need to be seen to rise above board in, in, in several ways. There are things, uh, choices of life that we do, but we know that they are not approved uh, by certain context. And once the team lost confidence um, in you in those moral and related issues, based on cultural information and, 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 and orientation, then it's very difficult to impact on them uh, professionally and socially. So, so, so that kind of uh, spiritual, moral leadership, exemplary, and so on matters. Um, so I, I, I look at this dimension. But the most critical instrument, uh, instrument for achieving this is listening. Listening is difficult, but you hardly regret uh, listening. If you listen, it's one thing to, to, to listen and can be another to act. Many people run away from listening because they feel that by listening, they are just forced to act. Yes, of course, if you also listen to good arguments and you don't act on them, it has a lot of quality implications. But don't run away from, from listening. And when uh, the team knows that you listen, they can go, go on to a, whatever miles to achieve results, knowing fully that, if there is any challenge, they 
have someone who listens and who actually uh, supports. So it's about my philosophy of leadership from professional to social to spiritual as a bit and also making listening and support the uh, central pillars to whatever I do. I've made uh, the team believe that in any situation and circumstances, I can listen and try to show understanding and support in my best way. Fantastic, fantastic. And, and, I, and, and I think this is critical to be our well-being um, that you, you speak about. This is fantastic. This is more than I could have asked for. So thank you so much for uh, laying it out and uh, highlighting the uh, your principles uh, in, in leadership uh, style because that, that speaks volume about your character. And uh, I like what you say about uh, leadership, uh, but not management, as uh, to paraphrase what you said. And um, as, uh, as Africans, of course, uh, I think when I first came to America, uh, uh, you know, getting into the culture is always, well, uh, why are you taking so long saying hello and uh, greeting? So I think you uh, alluded to that in your answer that as a, you know, as a byproduct of our culture, we, we, we get work done, but we also uh, are a product of our culture and our belief system. So we have to make sure that you are children and yourselves and uh, your extended families are well taken care of before we uh, delve into business. So I'm very much uh, uh, delighted to hear this because that's the true, uh, and it's not only Nigerian, but uh, as you can tell, and our audience uh, might sense this, this is a true African spirit. So I'm very happy that you uh, highlighted that and uh, the other uh, important uh, leadership styles and dimensions you mentioned are well uh, taken. Uh, Dr. Ibrahim, uh, you've recently uh, successfully completed your uh, PhD. I believe it's in English, correct? Yes, it is. Okay, so uh, if you can uh, uh, highlight that, because at the beginning you mentioned you were interested in a law degree, but then here you are, you've uh, worked in the past, uh, uh, you know, decade and so, in um in education interventions and things like that so how did you go, uh, go from um uh, legal or law degree to education and then back to uh, uh majoring and getting your phd in uh in english so if you can highlight your, your academic journey for our viewers how did uh, this uh education background prepare you for the life that you have right now in your career but also what advice would you give to others who are considering uh, advanced degrees? Uh, I would consider myself one of those who probably be uh, uh, encouraged and inspired by what you have to say. So please. Okay. Um, so a, a number of issues, and I will try to be, I have to make efforts to be brief here. You ask about a journey. Um, so legal is just one uh, uh, potential distractions. The second uh, and the earliest distraction was uh, to study computer science, and that was now 23 years ago, after finishing high school, when somebody just felt that you go and, and study computer, and um, I rolled in, in those days, um, we, we don't have uh, the word processing the way we have it today. 
um, we used what what is called WordPerfect, and you had to work with with two windows right. to and memorize a lot of uh, formulas yes. to be able to process documents. Um, for something like Excel, we were in PDA. We are working with um, uh, spreadsheets, Lotus, one, two, three, something like that. And you also had to work with a lot of formulas to work things out. But after finishing that, I, I looked at certain requirements. I realized that um, I would be limited in terms of being a computer scientist, but would be more of an operator. And I, I, I just came after a year. I said, I've gotten the share of what I needed. And I now want to go for an, an education uh, uh, certificate. And then my cousin, who was really old uh, then and educated, he said, now, Mikhailu, you want to leave a computer. In those days, we, 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 many people have not even seen a computer, but we had access to it. And we believed that computers could not work without air conditions. So we had the luxuries of enjoying air conditions because of the computers that we had to, we had to operate. But now here you are living this uh, program for education. And I have been a teacher all my life. What, what inspired you? I said, I just, this is what I want. He said, okay, then go for it. And, and that was how I was enrolled in what you call the National Certificate in Education. And it's a very intensive education uh, uh, program for three years. It's the minimum qualification you need to be a teacher in Nigeria. And um, I finished that. And then it was time to go to the university. But one thing I observed is that when people are into education, there are occasions where they have their attention divided between dealing with methodology and dealing with content. So uh, methodology, pedagogy, and others takes a share of what, what you teach. Uh, subject matter, either it is language, either it is uh, mathematics, physics, whatever, take a share of it. Efforts were made in Nigeria to change the pattern so that you take a normal degree and then take um, a year or two in, in education, but that has not changed. And I have seen a lot of content deficits to a number of people who took an education degree in the university. And I know that the program I had for NCE for three years was really enough to initiate me in, in education. I took not less than 30 courses in different aspects of education, philosophy, psychology, uh, principles and practice of education, measurement and evaluation, and, and several others. So many people in Nigeria will tell you that NCE is really one platform in which you can be grounded in education. So, so when I went to the university, I started to go for single honor so that I make sure that I'm also invested in the content aspect of my uh, learning. And I took English language. Partly, Nigeria is an English-speaking um, uh, country, English as a second language. So I felt if it is a teaching thing, I can be engaged anywhere. I wouldn't uh, find it difficult to get a teaching job anywhere in, in, in Nigeria when I, I study English. And, and that has proved to be uh, uh, true in a way, because even right when, when I was in the university, I was also engaged to work and teach in, in different places. So that was how I built uh, English studies 
And when I finished, I was uh, in, uh, engaged by my university as a lecturer. I went to uh, University of Ghana, Legon, for my master's. I later returned to Nigeria and took uh, um, uh, a PhD in, in, in English. But one thing is that my studies of English focus on what we call discourse studies. This, our life, is about how we talk and how we engage and how we write. And through what we produce of discourses, we are shaping opinions. We are building mindsets. We are exercising power uh, and in ways that we know and our audience know. And, and, and language is very critical to, to, to what we do. In fact, part of being anything is mastering the language uh, in which it is delivered and, and, and provided. So my research uh, focused on discourse analysis. And even in discourse analysis, there's what you call critical discourse analysis. And this is talking about how much you exercise power through language and how much power relations can be detected. Is it gender uh, balance? Is it uh, race um, relations? A lot of research has been done in that, in that regard. And I took that model and I, I examined the Nigerian newspapers and how the issues of um, uh, violence. So like the, the Boko Haram was one of my focus. How Boko Haram was portrayed in different Nigerian newspapers. As a northern Nigerian problem, um, how a, a southern Nigerian newspaper treated the story. So I was looking at their lexical choices and their construction of nominal groups. And I took a look at also the contrast of how a Nigerian newspaper, uh, sorry, a northern Nigerian newspaper portrayed the something. And I was able to show clear contrast in those, in those, in those two. Um, so I also took um, a social problem that has to do with southern Nigeria, which is what we call the OPC, the Order of People's Congress. And this is a, a kind of violent group with uh, related activities like, like Boko Haram. But I was trying to see how a newspaper from northern Nigeria um, projected the OPC and how a newspaper from the Southwest Nigeria projected uh, OPC. And you can see a lot of dynamics of power relations there. Part of the argument, and this could be about my last submission, part of the argument in my uh, thesis is that um, Boko Haram is what it is from the kind of name given to it as an issue on how the name was quickly settled without negotiation. They challenged them in different ways, but um, the power of the newspapers uh, um, took over and the name was ratified. And that made a lot of negotiations difficult because it's a blocked name. It's a house name. It can be interpreted in any way. My studies tried to look at two conflicts in Nigeria. One with, the, with its base 
in the northern part of it, and the other with the bees in the southern, southwest, particularly part of it. The one for the north is Boko Haram, which very many people know in relation to Nigeria. So part of the argument in my thesis is that um, the name Boko Haram was easily settled. Um, it's Hausa name. I need to interpret it to an outside person. But this is a media name. And part of the initial protest of Boko Haram was um, bombing one of the media houses that they felt was instrumental, was instrumental to giving them that name. So they had a lot of resistance, but then they don't have a corresponding instrument for countering it in a way. So settling on the name in the first instance, which means um, Western education is prohibited or Western education is unacceptable, is, is part of making them what they are because it's a block thing and is subject to a lot of interpretations. But these people in the, in the Southwest call themselves Odua People's Congress and they have given themselves a formal face and a secretary, they have a chair, they have a president, and they have different wings. So that made them look, although also, like Boko Haram, they are violent. We have news stories in which they kill uh, uh, of people in some occasions, thousands in Lagos, Shagamu, and other parts of uh, Southwest. But then, um, because of this somehow formal phase given to them, it was easy in different ways to to argue that they are like social pressure group and, and, and whatever. So a part of my argument was the naming thing, the way the groups were named, um, was really part of their emergence and also an aspect of their management and, and whatever is, 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 is happening. So this is um, uh, what, what I said in that, in that regard. But let me also come to the issue of uh, language study and English in, in particular. I was saying that um, uh, Noam Chomsky is a good example for us. Um, someone who really specialized in uh, natural sciences, but later developed interest uh, in uh, language research and development. And um, his theories about generative grammar, about minimalism, have contributed a lot in, in development of machine language because the uh, machine language is trying to imitate human language, and the insights from people like Chomsky um, uh, really helped in uh, bringing that perspective to us. So, so two dimensions of, of, of language in a way, uh, language as um, an instrument for communication, and language also, um, language as an as, um, instrument for social uh, understanding social control and, and social stability. The first thing about anything is the kind of name given to it. There are so many things that exist, but we don't recognize them because they have not been recognized uh, linguistically. They have not been given them, and there are so many things that could have been very much different because of the way language treats them in terms of how they are named and how they are described. This is the focus of um, my research. And I, in line with the principle I mentioned in the beginning of this uh, talk, is that trying to be the very best in what you are doing. 
And with all sense of uh, humility, um, I think in writing my, my, my thesis, when I started in Nigeria, um, I had the opportunity of going to the UK and visiting Lancaster, where most of the advocates of uh, my, my theory stage, I took um, about three theses and look at how they were written. So I came and started writing my thesis again, and it took me another two years to write it to that standard which I saw in Lancaster. And um, I had my graduation fairly easy. The examiner was, was, was happy with that and um, just even asking that I should share my experience um, with others uh, in the uh, defense room. So, so this is my journey so far. And it's about centrally trusting your instinct that this is where my instincts has driven me and I really followed it and I'm happy I do. So if there is any advice I can give others is that you, you have your instinct to trust significantly while you are learning from others. But unfortunately, and here comes my studies, um, that instinct, that your personality is what is being killed early enough. Um, schooling, family, and several other engagements are in a way structured to kill personal initiative and kill instinct by showing you what to do or what you should do or what is ought to be done. Why it's good to listen to all that, but listen to your instincts more. Very many people before 20, their instincts and their persons have been killed and they continue to live the life of others. So listen to your instinct, know yourself, and know what you can do uh, well and do it the way, the way you think um, it, it should be done. Excellent, excellent um, uh, tips and advice for uh, to listen to your instincts and uh, um, what you have uh, just said eloquently about your long journey. I know it would probably take another uh, interview to tell it all, but uh, it also mirrors my own. Uh, I can't help uh, uh, think about my own uh, journey when I'm listening to you, because I started with computer science too, so I couldn't help to smile when you were talking about all those uh, 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 computer programmings, and uh, and then I've never thought about myself to become a teacher, but here I am. I'm still, as you know, uh, a linguist uh, teaching Arabic and um, doing translation from uh, from Arabic to English and vice versa, and I do consider myself as a a bridge uh, builder. My company is uh, Bridge Language Solutions. So every single thing you've said about uh, Namchaski and uh, I've also considered uh, studying a sociolinguistic at Georgetown. So I'm very encouraged uh, what I've heard and to follow your instincts. So maybe uh, me included, I could uh, follow uh, my instincts and uh, maybe follow your uh, uh, food steps and uh, now I know I have a mentor uh, to follow and for our young uh, leaders uh, this is a really great great advice from someone who have uh, walked the walk and done the uh, uh, the work so uh, please uh, listen to this great advice and uh, and I'm sure we would have you back to uh, tell us more about that uh, of course you've mentioned uh, in a way this is uh, the PhD, if I may say, it's the pinnacle of your academic uh, achievement. So um, what other uh, milestones or uh, accomplishments uh, have you been able to uh, uh, accomplish? 
Okay, thank you for that. Um, well, in the development um, space, um, what I would say, I participated in accomplishing is proving that development interventions um, can achieve results and convincing stakeholders about that and making them own and sustain it. So far, um, the two programs that I was privileged to lead, one, Jolly Phonics, which is an English uh, program in Nigeria, I laid in the pilot program in Zamfara State, Nigeria, Sokoto State, um, Nigeria, Katsina State, Nigeria, uh, Niger State, and Kebbi State, five states. I laid with the pilot program. And now it's a full-fledged adapted English instruction program for these states. Whenever I look back, I feel really good about that. And we have, for the first time, developed crop of trainers from the northern parts of Nigeria that are servicing the southern part of it. It has always been the reverse, that you take experts from the south to train people in the north. And now we are having uh, northern Nigerian experts in Jolly Phonics, English instruction, moving all around Nigeria, uh, training in this synthetic reading uh, methodology. And because of that uh, achievement, I won the Commonwealth Professional uh, Fellowship that it, very competitive uh, engagement. And I went to the UK uh, for three months attending conferences, workshops on development generally, including participation in the International Development Society Conference and also the UK Literacy Association. So I felt really that is great. And in terms of reading and numeracy activity, RANAP, we, from the lessons learned about English intervention, that we need mother tongue intervention in the early grades. Um, when I was living for this, because of the kind of pressure to stay, um, I had to write one page in my diary to justify the reason why I have to move forward. I just believe that critical mass of our teachers um, in villages, uh, in counties, may not be so proficient in English to teach it well. And what we need as a foundation is the ability to read and write, regardless of the language you, you, you are using. So I still have that justification for myself that I made five years ago, and I'm happy I did it. So, so far now, um, people feel proud to teach in Hausa mother tongue a language for more than 50 million people in Nigeria and several other millions in other parts of Nigeria and, and, and West Africa. So we have now initiated that and, and um, from 200 schools where, where, when we started, now over 23,000 schools in Nigeria are using that method and it has proved it's one of the... Uh, best, I must say with, with all sense of humility, best examples of how 
mother tongue instruction because people are skeptical. People are feeling that this is a nation that is using English as a second language. Why do you go and emphasize teaching in the, uh, in, 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 in the mother tongue? But what we are saying is that do it in the early grades because technically you are taking out a lot of difficulties to the learner. And transition from the mother tongue to the second language is much easier. But because we are missing this, we uh, actually have an education system that is building on people who cannot read and write. And I feel that is the very foundation of our problem. And I feel good that we are making some difference there. And one thing that has given me the impetus to do that is the fact that I studied English to PhD level. And now promoting house of mother tongue. So if it is about protecting my territory, I would have encouraged studying English more. But I know it doesn't work as a foundation. There is a later stage in which we need it. And we are working on that now. So, so this is in development. The second area in which I feel good is in terms of professional and academic association. Very early in life, I served as the secretary of the Academic Staff Union of University in Nigeria for my branch. And I was writing press briefing, I was writing letters on behalf of every academic in my university. Um, more about 1,000 academic staff, some of them are about 100 and more professors. Writing on their behalf, writing to them was a great experience of life. And I think um, I was recognized as one of the earliest to hold uh, such a position. Um, the, the, we have a professional association called English Scholars Association of Nigeria, SM. That association stayed for more than 40 years without registration. And the first time we met was when they chose my university as a host of their annual conference. And from that interaction, it didn't take um, a year. Uh, I was part of the executive members of the association, and um, I had the honor of single-handedly working to get the association uh, registered, um, getting, giving it a sort of organizational piece with uh, a, a bank account, introducing um, coding of membership by giving each member uh, an identity num uh, number. And, and, and I'm the secretary now, the national secretary of the association. I remember when we invited one of the professors from the U.S., I led in the correspondence on when he came to Nigeria. But when we met and greeted, and I, I introduced myself, I said, I'm Mikhail. He said, I thought you should be older. So I felt somehow that a compliment in, in, in a way. So I feel um, really this my contributions in the development of professional associations and academic associations is really something I always look back and um, uh, appreciate in life. That's really a great experience, and we are honored to hear about it. In and Nigeria is fortunate to have uh, someone in your uh, capacity to do what um, you eloquently uh, outlined. Uh, Want to pivot a, uh, a little on the issue of, um, as you've mentioned, you work tirelessly. So about gender equity in Nigeria, um, what advice would you have for young African women? Uh, leaders 
and uh, of course others as well to move forward uh, with their life. I know you already gave uh, uh, tips and advice earlier, but more specifically, since your whole life has been about uh, gender equity. Yes. Um, the issue of gender is one thing that really suffers in Nigeria and especially in the northern part of it. Um, some of us that begin to advocate that, um, this concept of he for she, um, uh, in a way being perceived differently, that we have to make effort to convince people that um, you need the women to develop just as you need men to do. That no society can develop by this enabling um, a great uh, proportion of it. And honestly, I was inspired to work on that by a number of things. But the most critical one is my mother, whom I know had contributed a lot to my development. And I felt without her, um, it would be very difficult to be what I am today. Uh, hence the need to empower women. And we use a lot of strategies to do that. Uh, let me say that um, beyond uh, the work we are engaged to do in RANA, UNICEF um, has been approached me to make presentations to the legislators of state assemblies, to make laws that will ensure the development of women and, and children. And because I know the cultural background and orientation here, I went into sources of Islamic literature and come up with arguments that support most of the development yearnings about gender equity. And I, I must say that um, we have succeeded in getting some states um, make those laws. So when I'm engaged with um, first, the first principle is that we need to ensure that women are represented. Sometimes um, the women themselves hide because of the cultural burden on them. So encouraging them to come up. And also encouraging them to believe that they can do and do, do well. So, so this, this is something that can inspire any person, but I, for, for women particularly, I use this and really trust them and monitor that in any activity they are, present, are represented and they are given roles that are central and are not marginal in a way. So challenging them to believe in themselves, challenging them to see that a lot of women have achieved a lot. There are a lot of women models um, in our traditional society and in our modern society that they can look up to and even be better than them. So they, they need to look up to those and um, uh, challenge themselves to become uh, um, uh, better and contribute to the development of uh, our society. And making them also appreciate that um, no society can really develop without them. And there are special uh, personality, instincts, and competencies that are best attributed to them. And without them, um, um, certainly uh, human life will have a lot of 
vacant. And no program can succeed uh, in, um, with, with any outstanding without the contribution of um, uh, women in, in a way. So this is my perspective, and this is the kind of challenge I throw to them. Two questions. One is, um, to, to finish this up, uh, what questions are in your mind about the state of affairs during this pandemic, particularly in Africa and the world? And uh, dare I also say that, based on what we were talking uh, briefly on the phone, it seems like you are you, you, you're getting ready to add more uh, to your resume in terms of uh, aspiring to a higher office. So if you can tie up those uh, together, but also bring the audience up to speed in terms of what Nigeria has done vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, coronavirus. Uh, it's just the elephant in the room we cannot avoid. So if you can uh, highlight those, that would be great. Okay. So I feel that life comes in phases. There are instances in which we try to learn and get the necessary qualifications. And um, I actually don't say, I, I'm not saying that everybody has to be a PhD, um, but at least you need certain share of education um, to prosper and contribute in life. So there is that really? stage. Um, the uh, other stage in which we have to work and demonstrate certain uh, professional uh, competence and also and certain life experience. And I think the other uh, stage in life is that in which you go to the superstructure of uh, the society, reorganizing it, restructuring it from the kind of life you have lived through those previous um, stages. And I, I feel that this is really the moment. And um, uh, COVID-19, um, for me, is more like an opportunity uh, than a, a challenge in, in, in a way. It has constrained the world, and it has exposed the real strength of every economy. Um, it has removed a lot of um, pretenses. Uh, that exist around individual and um, institutional lives. Um, so we have seen, it has made us see the true picture of our, of our stand. And, and I think that is important because you need to know where you stand before you also engage and relate. I can't emphasize enough the importance of networking and um, collaborations and cooperation. But while doing that, also, you, you need to know what kind of stock um, you have. And because of a lot of engagement, people even lose themselves and lose any content, but are, are floating uh, with, the, with, with, with leverages and stuff like that. So this is the, the kind of situation we have. In Nigeria, we try to survive in different ways, do testing here and there, um, flights grounded, 
states depending on themselves, food security and other things were all uh, subjected to the test. One thing that I, I see um, is that um, we, we were able to survive in a way from food and related um, uh, stuff, which is important and which means despite the level of development in, in, in agriculture and other things, at least um, in many parts of Nigeria, there is a certain level of, uh, of self-reliance uh, and self-sufficiency uh, in that regard. But we can do a lot more. And the requirement for that is having the right people at uh, leadership uh, level. I will be really missing words if I say that I'm satisfied with the kind of leadership we have in the country, uh, Nigeria, and even in, in Africa. We need a sort of leadership that is visionary. That w what do we want to see in a certain um, period of time to come? Five, 10 years, 20 years. I'm working with all sincerity to mobilize human and material resources towards achieving that leadership that builds trust, um, a leadership that um, people look forward to for inspiration. I think it's key to um, the development uh, yearnings and gaps that we have in Africa. Let me say my philosophy about leadership as, um, as, as a last point in that, in that regard, is that we should be measured by what we can build um, rather than what we can destroy. Is about how much we can build of systems of um, services that provide satisfaction to our, our society, which is in their need uh, of it. And Good to point. do that, we need to invest greatly in human capital development. We also need collaboration within and, um, and, and outside. We can achieve a lot with that. There are so many things that you think you need and you have to start from scratch. But when you collaborate effectively, you stand to benefit mutually in that regard. And I think that is one new, uh, that's a new space that I feel I want to venture into. And I've observed one gap in leadership recruitment in Nigeria, that people take to politics, the main instrument of political leadership, very early in life before achieving anything professionally. So they are taking it as a way of life. What I feel about leadership is that demonstrate certain competence in service, in business, in whether it is spiritual leadership or whatever. So prove certain competence, competency. And then come, uh, it's just like a sort of demonstration for you. And now come and engage and share that experience um, uh, through with the wider society. But you have people in their tiptoes, in 20 years, starting politics as a career. They have not had 
the good background, educational background that is required. They have not worked through any important aspect of life. All they are engaged in is politics. And in the political space, you realize that a mentorship can be um, very limited. It's about winning. There is little morality to, to, to it. So hardly one can learn in that space. So I feel a, a paradigm shift is uh, important, where people work to achieve certain things and now come in public space to demonstrate that. And I must tell you that um, um, we, uh, I have a model that I feel uh, is worth trying. Um, one of the important um, uh, considerations that people make is how much money you have to participate politically. But I would like to demonstrate that it's not only about how much money you have, it's about how much experience, how much character, and how much network. And I would like that to be demonstrated with some success to prove that it's possible. So the first question that people ask you here when you are engaging politically is how much money you have. And it's true because you are dealing with people who are at the very basic level of uh, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. People who want to eat, who want to clothe themselves, the physiological needs. So when you can throw out money, um, you can use that to, to buy votes and, and stuff like that. And the, the first thing that people ask you when you engage politically is who is your sponsor or how much money you have to do it. But I believe that these people are human beings and they listen and it's about communicating to them. But how would you do that? Explaining how the previous models fell and how much the new model can work for them. And by that, proving that experience, um, character, communication are also political assets and, and resources. And of course, um, when I say that um, by the time we begin to make these declarations, I see crop of thousands of students have engaged in life, crop, crops of colleagues. We have worked in different aspects of life. Even people you have met in transit from one place to another coming up to provide those testimonies, and very many people uh, are listening to, to that. So, so, so this is really the new model we are trying to uh, put in the space, and we are very optimistic that it will work. But one thing that I would say in relation to COVID-19 is that it has given us uh, the platform to appreciate so many things we take for granted. Um, if we have to work and achieve a lot in, on our project remotely, yeah. if the system opens that you can drive, you can fly from one place to another, that's when we appreciate those things more and exploit them even more. And also look virtually and see how much of the virtual space we can exploit to achieve uh, our political goal and not only achieving the goal, because the ultimate goal is service to the uh, people and how we can really use the virtual space platform and gadgets to serve uh, humanity. This is how I, I, I see it. It's actually about paradigm shift. It's about 
having knowledge, experience, uh, character, and communication counting. And of course, going back to the issue of trust. Very excellent, very excellent. So what do you say there uh, to the last point you uh, raised about uh, the Nigerian response to uh, COVID-19? Are you satisfied or would you incorporate that into your new uh, model once you, uh, you have your um, operation uh, campaign uh, ready to uh, launch uh, to uh, test you know, those uh, models? But also, why would, the, uh, why would people go to uh, find information about you? and to read about your uh, great uh, model uh, for, uh, and the visions for the future of Nigeria? Great. Um, thank you for this question. I'm not in any way satisfied with the management of COVID-19 in Nigeria. The uh, testing is very low relative to the uh, population of the country. So all that we are seeing of our status now um, is only to the extent of how much test um, we have made. But thank God we, we, we have uh, still very limited death uh, casualty, not because of any effort actually um, that was made, but by, by sheer coincidence that um, in this space, we, we, we don't see much death as it happens in other parts of, of the world. Um, another thing is in terms of providing relief to people based on the impact of COVID. We see a lot of lights um, flying around. So one of uh, the Nigeria's minister for disaster uh, at a point said that they were feeding school children when schools had really opened, uh, had really closed, um, and she was given numbers of, of those. It's like she had, she had really forgotten that um, schools were, were, were closed. And um, just recently, they were making claims that um, their support and relief has reached um, uh, uh, the generality of Nigerians, that hardly there exists a household that does not benefit from that. And the first principle I, t I take is to ask about the 100 households around me on how many people have received any support. And when I don't find any, I just know that it's, it's a lie. And also throwing it to the public and people laugh at that and say that in, in, in what way that has happened. So it, the transparency with, in which uh, relief was really uh, provided is so, is so, so disappointing. You can account for any relief uh, that is provided to any category of Nigerian. The go uh, that government uh, um, provide uh, are really ridiculous to 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 those that are claimed to be um, beneficiaries. So there is no transparency and there is no accountability. Um, what we want to do differently is ensuring that we put in place a kind of leadership that is transparent, that's accountable, and that is not for the good of the lead. It's for the good of the leaders because that is the recipe for peace and, and that is the recipe for confidence. And um, uh, people can even be contributors 
uh, themselves. But when they don't have this uh, confidence, and they can understand your limitations when 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 you are you you are really uh, uh, transparent. So so this is really the uh, paradigm shift that we want to bring when the opportunity prevails, and and I believe it will someday. Excellent. Well, uh, I like uh, what I hear: transparency vis-à-vis uh, -vis, uh, the public and uh, uh, to the office that uh, you'll be running for. So you would uh, make a great uh, um, public uh, official. So Nigeria would be lucky uh, to uh, vote you and uh, for you to assume uh, public office. Uh, to uh, to conclude our conversation, I would like to uh, end it up with if you have any final thoughts, but also to more to the issue of... Uh, gender equity, which you uh, were talking about, uh, since that's what you've uh, done uh, for most of your life. What are, uh, particularly when you look into uh, the U.S. politics, we've just, uh, I guess, a milestone for the United States to have a, a VP for the first time who is a person of color, and um, th that uh, speaks to the issue that you were talking about earlier, which is an inspiration to not only to uh, people of color, but to women generally. Would you perceive, uh, would you uh, foresee in Nigerian politics, uh, since you're getting into politics one day, you probably would have a woman, as he's put it, uh, being challenged into public offices and, and having some equity, not only in education, but in uh, realm of, of, of politics. I just couldn't help but uh, ask you that question. Okay. From... Equity um, perspective, I think, is very easy in Nigeria. We have had great women um, that held critical positions of power, and they proved to do it very well. The examples are, are many. We had um, Professor Dora Kunyili, who, uh, who led uh, NABDAC, the agency that was uh, in charge of drug control. Very many people did not know about that agency until when Dora really took over. And she worked against local and international um, drug cartel, and, and she survived. She showed a good example of leadership. Um, we have uh, a Nigerian uh, called Amina Ibrahim, who is now a big player in the United uh, Nations. I, I think she's one of the deputies of the United Nations um, uh, 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 Secretary. So uh, those examples are common and prevalent in Nigeria. Ngozi, Okonja, Ewela is, is, is there in all parts of, of Nigeria. So I, I feel one thing about life is that um, when you can show examples and show people that this is, I want to see something better than this, is really very critical. And um, this, as I move in life, let me tell you, one of the privileges I have had in life is supervising the project of the first female uh, uh, president of student union government in Nigeria. And we still work together. I'm her referee 
uh, in most of the various applications, and she's doing very well in the data space. So this this is not something that will happen as an accident, but it happens by identifying great and strong women. On my uh, on our project, I've worked with quite a number of um, women that have demonstrated a lot of uh, competence. And I feel we couldn't have achieved what we did without them. So my point is that when I believe in, in, in equity, I've seen good examples of it. I can trust it and I can challenge, I can recruit and challenge um, uh, competent women. I, I feel that power and roles should not be given, should be earned. And women have proved that they can earn them and, and they can even do uh, more. So that is um, from that uh, uh, point of view, that in, in any leadership space that I partake, I, I would really uh, demonstrate that there are uh, capable women and their contributions uh, are, are key to uh, whatever we, we really want to achieve. In terms of uh, leadership, generally, I want to see a leadership that is visionary and reflective. Our past should be useful to us, just as we also look forward to the, to the future. And any model should be used according to its merit. It is about the merit and the workability of the model that, 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 that matters. Because when we are blind with theories, with models, we fail to achieve the real goal of, of life. The main, main purpose of leadership is providing service and ensuring societal stability and, any, and happiness. And any model that eventually does not contribute to that in the short or long term will be used according to the extent of its relevance. This is what I, I see. The goal is our major model, and we will be looking at it. And I think communication is also very critical in that regard. Excellent. On that last one on communication, so how would uh, people, our audience, or people in Nigeria or elsewhere who would want to connect with you, how can they connect with you? Where would they go and find okay. you? I truly appreciate the opportunity provided by the social media, um, Twitter, WhatsApp, Facebook. If I will talk about where I belong, I was encouraged to do blog, uh, blog sites and others, but I still find Facebook at the most reliable way of reaching out and uh, knowing my thoughts. I have passed a lot of thoughts on my timeline, Mikael Barau, M-I-K-A-I-L, Barau, B-A-R-A-U, that you can see my thoughts about different aspects of life on that uh, uh, timeline. For now, um, I would highly recommend my Facebook page. And because somehow in Nigeria, Twitter is taken to be more elitist um, than, than Facebook. You have more of people that you need to reach and communicate to. And that's why sometimes I write in Hausa. 
because of my audience. And, and I, I check communication really important. And I find Facebook a very good platform for that. Um, in those days before we have spaces like this, um, some people that feel that they have some thoughts to share, um, some ideas to share, are really constrained by the gatekeeping that exists with uh, national newspapers and other traditional media. But that um, um, challenge has significantly been addressed by the thousands of people you can reach through the social media platform. So I am actively present on Facebook through my handle, Mikhail Barrow, and I have invested a lot of thoughts in that over the last uh, 12 years. Excellent. And I'm, uh, I'm a, a fan, of course, of uh, Mikhail uh, Rao, as he uh, said, and uh, I would uh, maintain uh, my, um, I, I will be a, a fan for uh, years to, to come. Now, uh, where can people um, find your article, the one that uh, we talked about, about uh, tr uh, trust building? Um, the article on trust building was uh, published by Journal of Childhood Development, if I recollect very well. And I, I think um, just a mere Google check of my name, Mikhail Ibrahim, will, will lead you to that, to that article. Looked it up, I think it's childhood uh... Uh, childhood education and uh, uh, call on innovations or innovators. Yeah, yeah. innovations. So, yeah, excellent. Edition. Yeah, and it's yes. an international uh, uh, publication that uh, showcases uh, uh, education uh, trainings and, co and 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 other publications in the field of uh, uh, educational yeah. development. Yeah. Okay. And of course, uh, Hashim. I also try to upload my articles on the academia. Excellent. So, academia. In, in, in Nigeria, we still have, uh, we, we have journals. And here is the point on power relations. When you talk about journals, we, you can have a strong local journal here, but may not have the international forum that is expected. So when we publish in those, we go to academia and deposit those articles. And under the name Barau is very critical. B-A-R-A-U is very critical to searching my uh, virtual presence. So I'm also on the academia where I have deposited some articles. I, I, I published on a number of academic uh, topics, including the issue of national language in Ghana and, and Nigeria. Uh, how we can emerge with a national language. And I think that's one article I cherish among several other publications. So far, I have uh, published in academic journals within the country and internationally about 15 or so of them. And um, I have deposited some and I'll deposit more on my academia page. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Mikhail um, Ibrahim, for this in-depth analysis and very, very fascinating uh, academic and uh, career journey and also for all the advice that you've uh, provided for our uh, young uh, leaders in Nigeria but also uh, in Africa and 
uh, in the world. And uh, as you've uh, mentioned, you, your journey expand um, uh, years and years of uh, uh, dedication to public service and you about to uh, uh, make a shift, uh, as you put it, a paradigm shift in uh, into politics and uh, uh, wish you a great, great campaign. And I'm sure we would have you back uh uh, on Momentum Africa to tell us more about your next uh, move and uh, and what you can do for uh, Nigeria and, uh, and and Africa. So thank you, thank you so much for uh, the time and for all these uh, uh, insights that, that you have provided. And I'm very, very honored to have you on the show. I have a lot of confidence in the ability of you and the team to um, really project uh, Africa the way it should be through this platform. I consider it a unique opportunity to be a part of um, the initial people to be hosted by this platform. And I really look forward to engaging more uh, with you and the team. Thank you so very much and keep doing the good work.